Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. I'm really excited today. I've got someone who I've been watching for years, listening to for a long time. Many of you know him, but I'm going to give him an introduction anyway. He's the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute. He was the foreign policy advisor to Ron Paul, and he is the co-host of the Ron Paul Liberty Report, Daniel McAdams. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me onto your program. Absolutely. So like I said, I've been watching you and Ron for years, and um, I used to be a sort of a neocon um, uh -oh. <laughs> in, in high school. I was just an idiot. And I've been watching the Liberty Report, I think, since 2014, I think. 15 uh, we started, yeah. <laughs> 2015, okay. So it must have been 2015. But I've been listening since pretty much the beginning um, I actually watched uh, Ron Paul's debate moments from the 2012 election in 2014, because it was around 2014 that I started realizing this whole neoconservative <laughs> gibberish, you know, bullshit that I'd been listening to was wrong. So I went back and started watching his uh, debate videos from 2012. And then I found out about Rand Paul. And that's kind of what sucked me into the movement. But um, I know a lot of people have felt that way about Ron Paul and about the Ron Paul uh, Institute and about the Liberty Report. What do you got? What do you think that the most important thing you guys have done with the Institute and with the show and with the campaigns? What, what's the what's the biggest victory you think you guys have gotten over the years? I think the greatest thing that we've done is just bringing people together, you know, uh, and, you know, Dr. Paul, you know, his his message has always been, you know, do what you want to promote liberty, but you should have fun doing it. And that's always been, you know, what we try to do, <clears throat> excuse me, on the show. We try to joke a little bit. Dr. Paul is, tends to be a little bit more of an optimist. I'm a bit more of a pessimist. But, you know, we've had a lot of we've had a lot of big conferences in D.C. We've had some in Houston. We've got some coming up this year. And there's just nothing like getting a room of 300 people together with similar thoughts you know, similar, similar perspectives, uh, exchanging notes, developing friendships, building a network. So I think that, you know, all the other stuff is important. All the arguments are important. All of the, the themes are important, but getting people together and getting people to communicate, I think is the absolute most important thing we do. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, I think that the, the community that that exists as a result of the whole Ron Paul movement is what has kept all the ideas alive because ideas without an, any humanity attached to it or any community or any uh, outreach is just dead. So uh, the, the, the community that you guys have built uh, that still exists today is the powerhouse of liberty because it, it seems like almost every time there's a diversion from true anti-interventionism or anti-libertarian thinking within the liberty movement, it's typically coming from people who hate Ron Paul, which I've always found very interesting. You know, if someone is a huge Ron Paul fan, it's really rare that you're going to see them spouting this, you know, these CIA talking points or going down this woke train that you see so many people going down, but it really seems that the, the Ron Paul movement is what birthed us the the true libertarians for this generation. So I don't think there's, um, you know, I don't think there are any words that could really summarize how much that has done for people my age. 
Um, and yeah. you, you guys have been right about pretty much everything. I mean, is there anything that you think you guys got wrong or do you feel pretty good about <laughs> your <laughs> assumptions about what we're going to play out versus how things did play out? Well, I'll say that in one second, but I just want to comment on what you said previously. It is interesting that people that just hate Ron Paul, because, you know, I, um, I I worked for his district, you know, when I was on Capitol Hill, when he was a representative. Right. And now I live, <clears throat> excuse me, I live about a mile away from him. So I live in the district and I know the people well and I know what it was like during the campaigns, not the presidential, but the congressional ones. And this is a very conservative area. It's a Bible Belt. Uh, our district changed a little bit through the years, but essentially the core is very conservative, very Christian. And um, how did he keep getting elected in such high margins when he was so consistently anti-war? And it was, it was because people who disagreed with him on these issues nevertheless had so, as, as enough respect for him to say, you know, Ron, I'm not really with you on this war stuff, but I know you're a good man and I know you you, know, you mean the best, so you've got my vote. And so... You know, I think that's the effect that he has on people. Seldom does he um, evoke an, uh, such a such a uh, such a uh, extreme response of people that just hate him. You know, but there are people that just hate him because they hate him. People like Nick Sarwark, for example. Uh, you can't really cite how you know what he disagrees. Who knows what it is? But there are many people like that to just hate him. And you're right. No matter what he does, you know, if tomorrow he came out as a woman. Whatever they would still hate him, so you know it's um, it's just a it's just a thing, and maybe some of it's jealousy. Who knows? Because he 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 brings people together with a smile on his face, uh, and you know I always struggle to emulate him because I tend to be less positive and optimistic, and I can be a little grouchy and a bit of an ass. So whenever I'm getting that way, I try to channel my inner Ron Paul. Um, but as to being wrong, yeah, I was wrong recently, and uh, to a degree, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to say 100%. I did not think that Russia, I know we'll get into this later, I did not think that Russia would go into Ukraine the way it did. Right. Uh, I, I believe that Russia would go into Donbass and protect Donbass. I underestimated the level of resolve uh, that Moscow felt toward what was happening in Kiev. And I feel a little bit less crappy about it now that things have come out that I didn't know before, like all of these bio labs. Uh, that yeah. came out. Well, that's a big threat. Uh, the fact that there was a NATO training base in Western Ukraine, uh, the fact that the CIA had been training Ukrainian military in Eastern Ukraine since 2014. I didn't know those things. Obviously, my guess is that Russian intelligence knew it. And these things just kept stacking up. And they finally said, we just got to blow the lid off this crap. So I didn't think they would do that. Uh, and they did. So, uh, but I'm glad that I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm not tooting my horn, but I'm not often wrong. I don't often get things uh, wrong in this way. Yeah. So you have a very um, personal experience or, or, or personal um, opinion about all this because you actually lived in Hungary for uh, how many years was that? Seven years. The Clinton years. years. I was in exile during the Clinton years. <laughs> oh, so was this when they actually uh, joined NATO? Were you living there when that happened or? Yeah, that probably the timeline is right. You know, my my little gray cells are, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was around that time. Yeah, and I mean, I I um, it may have been just after I got back, because uh, I had I was vehemently opposed to NATO expansion, uh, the whole time. Ironically, you talk about being a neocon. Ironically, it led me to uh, to a job at a neocon think tank in D.C. I won't name it because 
Uh, being naive uh, in living in Central Europe, we both were very, very strongly opposed to NATO expansion, but for different reasons. So it's kind of funny how that brought people together. Yeah. So what was your experience in Hungary like as it relates to Russia and NATO and aggression between them? What 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 did you take away from there? What, were people in Hungary very pro-NATO or were they more sympathetic to Russia? Is it something they didn't really care about? What was your experience like living there? Well, there were, you know, there were different uh, lines in society. The <clears throat> I, I worked with a party that's now in power called Fides. Um, I actually worked for the party for a while, but all my good friends, including the current prime minister, were in the party. And they saw, you know, they, you know, Viktor Orban was one of the first figures to publicly come out and say, Russians go home. And this was the memorial to the 56 revolution. And it was, it took place in June of 1989 when Viktor Orban you know, stood up and said, Russians go home. So for that group of people, uh, joining NATO signified the fulfillment of a, mo- a return to the West that they felt they had always belonged in. You know, Hungary, uh, the, the Hungarian, Austria-Hungarian monarchy was the center of Europe. It was the Holy Roman Empire. So they viewed that as a return to their birthright as sort of the cradle of Western civilization. And so they obviously were all for it. Well, the commies felt the same way because the commies obviously, uh, I should say post-communists, the, the nomenclature of the people, the children, the children of the people, children and grandchildren of the people who took over in 47 and 48, they also viewed it as a positive because they were used to allying with a foreign power for force, and that provided them with all the goodies that they grew up uh, with and that they had the that they were afforded. The uh, you know their children went to universities overseas, that they lived in the finest homes, and they drove the finest cars. They had telephones, and nobody else did. So both sides, for different reasons, saw this as a big plus. Very, very few, at least in Hungary, when I was there, there was a very, very small contingent, I guess you'd say on the far left, which were the actual communists, uh, which ironically weren't as bad as the post-communists, uh, and the far right uh, were both opposed to, to that. Uh, so so that's sort of the, the ideological fault lines of NATO expansion in the 90s. Right. So, I mean, I think most people know what your opinion on it is, but for those who don't, what do you think about NATO expansion? Is it accurate to say that that is what has provoked uh, a Russian response in all of this, or is NATO a good thing? Should it be abolished? Just give us the lowdown on your opinion on that. Yeah, it should have been abolished when the Warsaw Pact ended. It was designed to fight an enemy that uh, to, to defend against an enemy that no longer exists. Russia is not the Soviet Union, despite what many members of Congress may think. I think there's even one member that said um, the reason Russia is is taking over Ukraine is because they're communists and they can't feed themselves. <laughs> so that shows the level of intelligence among our esteemed elected officials. Um, but you know, to a degree, this is about NATO expansion. Yes, it is. Although both uh, the U.S. and its West European allies always knew that Ukraine would never be in NATO. Uh, First of all, it's not eligible because you're not eligible if you have a standing border dispute, which they have. Uh, But they knew it was never going to happen. And I think this is what may emerge when the hysteria dies down, because most of the people that substitute their mask avatars for Ukrainian flag avatar uh, will lose uh, we'll lose interest in a couple of weeks. That's the limit of their attention span. But, <laughs> but when the smoke clears, what's going to come out, and smart people have been writing about it from the beginning, uh, and smart people are still writing about it, 
that th this entire chapter, and it started probably in 14, you could go back to 05 and the Orange Revolution. This entire entire chapter was all about regime change in Russia. And uh, briefly, you asked me about my time in Hungary. I was working for a human rights group that monitored the U.S. Uh, uh, the U.S. Um, um, the, the U.S. color revolutions in that part of the world. So we had seen these things happening. Uh, any slightly nationalist, any uh, any skeptic of U.S. policy was overthrown. It happened over and over. So you get to the point now in the the mid 2000s or the early to mid 2000s where a pro-Russia candidate was elected in Ukraine. That person was overthrown in the Orange Revolution. Fast forward to the next election uh, with some inter intervening period. Uh, they elected the same guy again, Yanukovych. They elected the guy who wanted to get along with Russia. Russia's their neighbor. They speak Russian for the most part. Uh, you know, even the president Zelensky had to learn to speak Ukrainian. He's a Russian speaker, right? So that's deeply, you know, that's deep in their roots. So, uh, so that's why he was overthrown. So the, this whole thing is about regime change in Russia, and we know this for a number of reasons. And Aaron Maté, who's a great progressive. I'm sure your, your viewers uh, read his stuff along with Glenn Greenwald and a few others. Uh, he just had a really great piece out uh, that is just a really nice summary of what happened. But he points out that Carl Gershman, who was the founder and chairman for life, uh, although I think he stepped down now, I think he's about 130, of the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, by the way, a lifelong Trotskyite, uh, heading our democratization <laughs> program for the U.S. government. Um, he wrote a piece, I think it was, in the, it was in the Washington Post and New York Times, just before the Maidan, just before the coup in 2014 in Ukraine, in which he said, Ukraine is the prize. This is, and I'm paraphrasing now, essentially, getting Ukraine, the jewel into our crown, will be the final straw for Putin in Russia, it will lead to the overthrow of his government. So that was obviously the goal among people like Gershman. Gershman's crowd obviously include people like Victoria Nuland, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan. They're all in this same uh, liberal interventionist uh, kind of uh, <clears throat> a kind of realm. Okay, uh, and Mete also talked about a WikiLeaks release of a Defense Intelligence Agency document a little bit later that talked again about how the Russians perceive NATO enlargement and how they perceive it as being aimed at the overthrow of the Russian government. And the DIA analysis uh, concluded, and I'm not quoting verbatim, basically they, they, have, they have a good point. You know, they, obviously they're, they're getting it. So it's always been about regime change for Russia. These people, I'm, I'm telling you, they are so full of hubris and pride you know, uh, it's one thing to overthrow Honduras or, or, or you know, and, and this is not making fun of Honduras, but a little relatively small country right. with little uh, political or military power. This is a big enchilada, right? Overthrowing Russia. But these people are so full of their own supposed importance and brilliance and omnipotence that they actually attempted it. And it got to the point where Russia was watching it for eight years and they finally said, screw it, enough. We're not going to deal with this. And that's not, I'm not cheering on the bombs, obviously. This is what someone would say. Oh, well, you, you sound like you're taking talking points. No, I'm not cheering the bombs. I'm anti-war. War sucks. People get killed. However, I'm trying to understand how we got to where we were doing and also who's really at fault. There's a hell of a lot of blame to be shared by a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's kind of 
it's kind of funny. A lot of libertarians nowadays understand that um, 9-11 was blowback for our policies in the Middle East with Palestine and with uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Like they understand that those bombs that we dropped and those massacres we aided in, they ended up radicalizing people to do terrible things to our country. And that's not even controversial in the libertarian world anymore. That's totally understood. But a lot of libertarians mm. are falling for this Russia crap. And if, if if we try to do exactly what you're describing, which is exactly what Ron Paul did on the debate stage in 2007, trying to explain to an angry mob that, look, this happened because we were doing stupid stuff beforehand. And we have, I mean, it's not like it makes Saddam Hussein a good guy or Osama bin Laden a good guy or ISIS or any of these, you know, any of these entities that we're fighting. It doesn't make any of them good. It's just understanding why this is happening in the first place. And, um, you know, it, it's just like with the war in Iraq, like people don't even understand any of the history and they don't understand any of the lack of connections that they're making. They just want to go blow something up mm. and feel good about it. And um, I watched your speech uh, from, I think, 2020, uh, 2019 or 2020, I forget. But you're saying it's important to not become a mouthpiece for the intelligence agencies. So a lot of libertarians will say, well, obviously, I don't want intervention. I don't want to send troops over there, but I'm going to be a mouthpiece for the CIA all the way along. I'm going to dehumanize russians and you know the uh make the russian government out to be the most despotic regime that's ever existed i'm going to do all that work for them until they tell me we need to go to war yeah. so and and they kind of use that as an excuse like look see i'm not advocating for any of this stuff but your speech was very good and it outlined why that's not good enough and i was wondering if you could just elaborate on that again why is it bad to be the mouthpiece for the intelligence agencies even if you're not advocating for war necessarily yeah. You know, Dr. Paul always tells a funny story that, you know, that Leonard Reed from Fee says, you know, everyone's got a butt. <laughs> and, and it's kind of funny on two levels, especially coming from Dr. Paul. But uh, <laughs> it's true. Everyone has a butt. Hey, I'm all for that. But, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. all I'm, I'm with you on this one. But and that's that's what this is, you know, and I in the speech, you know, I mentioned the the Rockwell rule, uh, which I think is something that uh, libertarians should adopt. Uh, most won't or many won't. I think many more will. They're coming in our direction, but which is I refuse to demonize any government that the CIA wants me to demonize, uh, you know, or any leader that the CIA wants me to demonize. Uh, right. I will keep I'll keep it to myself. I'm not going to say uh, leader X is a monster. He rapes babies for fun, but I don't want to send in troops because you're not going to you don't want to carry water for these people. Um, how many times do we learn later that it's untrue? Even if it were true, it would be irrelevant because we're interested in uh, what's in our interest. And we also know that collateral damage of any action the CIA would take or the government, U.S. government would take, any action it would be more emboldened to take because, see, even the libertarians agree, any action that they would take because of that would result in more misery among the people that they purport to save. Uh, and anyone who doubts that, you're welcome to go to Sirte in Libya. You're welcome to go uh, anywhere in Syria. You're welcome to go anywhere that we've liberated and ask these people how they're doing now that we remove their monster of a leader. So that's why it's important. Yes, I'm anti-war, but that's a given. You know, that's a given. 
I'm more than anti-war, I'm anti-war propaganda because that's the seeds that are planted to lead to war. And trust me, the bad guys are planting these seeds much more heavily in libertarian and even um, progressive circles. A lot yeah. of progressives were horrible on Syria. Some of them have, have come around, but a lot of them were horrible on Syria as well. So they want to pick out these 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 two sort of, uh, uh, I say fringe areas, but these sort of areas of possible disagreement. They want to pick those off first, and they're very good at it. Yeah, so with Syria and with Ukraine, the bad guy in both of those scenarios is Russia. So is it strange that progressives have suddenly fully embraced Russia just being the bad guy all the time? I mean, I remember back in 2012 during the debates, Obama even told Romney, like, we, uh, you know, the, the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. All the Russian fear mongering was kind of silly. But then like a year or two later, the Democrats and unfortunately, a lot of the progressives, like the ones who are supposed to be good on the Democrat side, they fully went along with the whole Syrian narrative. And then also uh, with the Ukraine, you know, the Crimea narrative with Russia in 2014, that they're these bad, horrible people. Well, why do you think that is? Why did that switch happen? And why is Russia just the boogeyman now? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they operate on principle like a few of them do. But, you know, people like Tulsi Gabbard, she's done very well, and she's she's gotten beaten up lately pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but she stands her ground. She's got a lot of guts. People like Dennis Kucinich, who sits on the board of the Ron Paul Institute, because his his opposition to war is based on principle. And I haven't seen anything he said uh, currently, but I would be very surprised if he um, if he went off the rails. Uh, but I, I, in fact, I, I would seriously doubt that he would. But why do they do it? I mean, there's also an information deficit. Yeah, this is amazing. And watching what's what's been happening these past few weeks is amazing because there was a war declared, wasn't declared, but there was a war uh, from Russia, you know, attacking Ukraine. But there was a lot of other wars that happened too. There was a war on freedom of information. Uh, you know, RT shut down worldwide practically. RT America permanently shut down. Uh, the, the suspending and banning of accounts on Twitter across the board uh, for, for, uh, for providing alternative information. I mean, the, um, I used to look at a site called uh, uh, AWS News Military, and they weren't doing anything but presenting a, a different perspective on the news in Ukraine and Russia. They were banned. So before, before anything happened, all alternative sources of news were banned or dried up. And the mainstream from the from the left, from MSNBC to Fox, they all sang from the same page, from the same choir book. I mean, I was at the gym today, <clears throat> and I look up, and there's this this moron, General Keen, right on Fox News. He's giving his uh, uh, analysis based on his vast experience, and he's got a freaking Ukrainian flag on his on his coat. You know, give me a break. You know, okay, yeah, we we, we <laughs> yeah, we got you there, Jen. You know, I mean, it's it's. It's so ridiculous, uh, the information stranglehold. And, you know, at some point, people, your their default should just be, they are bullshitting us full stop. I don't believe a friggin' word you right. say. End of story. I don't even care if it's true. I don't care if you told me that ice cream tastes good. I don't believe you because you're a liar. You know, and if we get to that point, then maybe we can make some progress. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I was the same way as you. I know I'm not nearly as educated on this stuff, but I didn't believe that Russia was going to invade Ukraine either. And I think it was because I am at that point, like 
whenever they're saying something, I'm at the point that I just yeah. call bullshit immediately. And default, I guess that, default, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you, you brought up Tulsi Gabbard and I've actually got a clip that I want to play. Um, so I've heard you got suspended from Twitter for calling Sean Hannity a retard. Is that what actually happened? That is actually exactly correct. <laughs> All right, perfect. Well, uh, I think you might reaffirm your stance on that. After I'm sure you've already seen this clip, but I got a clip of Tulsi Gabbard talking with Sean Hannity, and I just wanted to roll it real quick and then get your reaction. We'll play it here. We've provided a tremendous amount of support to Ukraine, not only now but over the years, so that they have the ability to defend themselves and the Ukrainian but should military. Should we give the them the weapons so they can? You're not answering. Strong, should we give them defense. the weapons to win the war? If they're doing a great job, everybody acknowledges that. Should we yes. give them all, all, and Europe too, give them the weapons if they're willing to fight for their country? They can't win this war, Sean. This is the real world that we live in. It is not, uh, it, it's not strategically possible to think that Ukraine is going well, to beat Russia. If, if you look it, at it, and, and then so it also you're is saying the question, is, what does winning you look fear like? Of Vladimir Putin, look like? You're saying you fear Vladimir Putin will use a nuke. If he uses a nuke, the, radi the, the radiation fallout will impact NATO countries. That triggers Article 5. Do you believe in Article 5 of the NATO agreement? I, I, I think that I think the most responsible thing that our leaders, the United States, leaders of NATO, Ukraine and Russia need to do right now is look at what the reality is that we are facing on the ground and the reality that I the world be is clear. facing and come so together to be them, able to negotiate an outcome to this. Okay. Putin doesn't want to negotiate, clearly doesn't want to negotiate. There's been many attempts at negotiation. So when you see images of dead women and I'm children, not aware of you, of, and when you see Zelensky neighborhoods blown out, yet. hang on. You 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 not think we should provide them the weapons to defend themselves? That's I just want to know yes or no. So <laughs> I just I think it's funny on a um I, I want to cover a couple things there. First, I just want to go over the propaganda uh, that uh, that Hannity is spewing there. That Putin is just a madman who won't sit down for any sort of talks, and he is basically Hitler, and we have to do everything we can to stop him. What are your thoughts on Hannity's uh, statements there? Fact check, McAdams on Twitter, correct, <laughs> right? <laughs> the fact right. checkers all agree for once, <laughs> you know, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, how do you start with Hannity? I mean, it's not even worth it. The reason that I said that word about him is that he had, it was in 2019, he had this ridiculous monologue about the deep state, the deep state, the deep state, and he's wearing a CIA pin, I'm like, come on. You know, I mean, who do you think yeah. the deep state is, Sean? Who do you think it yeah. is? You know, so he's too dumb to think about. But, you know, he's, he's so ignorant because, you know, Putin would never sit down. The whole reason this could have been, this could have been prevented in December. As your listeners no doubt know, uh, the foreign minister Lavrov presented to the United States a series of draft documents imagining a different kind of security architecture in Europe, right? Kind of a post-NATO world. Um, and it had several different components to it, uh, all of which were worth considering in a very serious manner. Rather than saying, you know what, we don't agree with everything you've said here, Russians, but in the interest of all of our uh, future peace and prosperity, let's sit down and see what we can make of these. Instead of doing that, 
the Biden administration in the person of, of Tony Blinken and the others, and you know, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, they laughed in the Russians' face. They laughed, they tore it up, they threw it out, they tore it up like Pelosi tore up Trump's State of the <laughs> Union speech, right? They laughed it out of the ballpark. And I think that was the final. And the Russians even said, this is our final attempt to get through to you. We need to talk, pick up the phone, you know? And so, <clears throat> yes, <clears throat> pardon me. They did try to have this discussion. They did try to have uh, this communication. I don't know if, if Hannity's lying, if he's not privy, if someone didn't put it in front of his face that he doesn't know that it happened. But the fact is they made every effort, um, even if you, even, I mean, it doesn't matter what you think, it's worth talking. You remember jaw jaw is better than war war. Um, it would have been reasonable to sit down and talk, but you've got a, an administration that is, that is deeply, deeply hobbled by a president who's obviously not up to the task right now, uh, and people below him for, for different reasons that are not up to the task uh, either. And it's become very, very clear that they're not up to the task. We don't have uh, deeper thinkers. We don't have people who can see beyond this sort of uh, fisticuffs of the beltway. Uh, and that's a real problem. So sorry, Hannity, you're wrong. They did try to talk. We didn't take their messages. Uh, we didn't text them back, whatever. And that's where we are. And the sad part of it is because of the arrogance and the hubris of Washington, partly responsible for the suffering of the people on the ground in Ukraine right now. Yeah. So what about what Tulsi said that there's no way they can win this war? Uh, and I can't remember if it was in that clip I played, but somewhere yeah. in that segment, she said um, it's cruel to treat the Ukrainians as though they can defeat Russia. That's stupid and cruel. And all we should be doing is trying to figure out how to come to some sort of agreement and end this war. Do you think that's pretty well summarizes the situation? It's absolutely true. And I, I don't have military training, you know, uh, but I, I defer to people who do and who I respect, you know, people like Colonel Doug McGregor, people like Scott Ritter, uh, people like Larry Johnson, who know what they're talking about. Uh, you know, the colonel was in a tank driving into Baghdad. He knows a little bit about this stuff. He also wrote a bunch of books on military strategy. Uh, Scott Ritter, uh, by the way, for your listeners, just did an amazing, amazing Twitter thread explaining the entire Russian strategy for this for this operation. I really encourage people to 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 dig that up and find it. And I can mail it if you want to uh, include it in your show notes. But it's very clear. And J Larry Johnson writes about this, former CIA writes very clearly about this from the first day the war was lost because of what the, the, the Russian strategy was to establish air superiority, which they did in the first day or two. Absolute air superiority. There have been some drones that have been successful, of course, but this is all tactical level stuff, right? The Russians rule the sky. Uh, they destroyed the entire Ukrainian uh, Navy. There is no Navy. There is no Air Force. And the vast majority, remember, it wasn't just the Russians massing their troops on the border. The Ukrainians before that had massed 100,000 soldiers on the border of the Donbass. Uh, and that may have been one of the triggers because it looked to the Russians like they were about to do a full-fledged attack. So you have 100,000. The bulk of the fighting force of the Ukrainian military was all massed there on the border of Donbass. And what the Russians were able to do was completely separate that operationally from Kiev, uh, losing contact there and in Mariupol, where the Azov battalions were centered, 
the most brutal, vicious fighting force. As you know, they they have some strange uh, they have some strange heroes in their past that normal yeah. people don't look up to. Um, so once you've gotten rid of their air force, gotten rid of their navy, uh, denied them the ability to do anything in the sky. Uh, and then separate the vast majority of their army here on Donbass and form what they're doing now, a mass cauldron, where there are 60,000 fighting uh, men uh, who, who, who hopefully they won't, but may well be decimated. The war is over. What, what are they going to do with a couple of Soviet-era MiGs? <laughs> you know, they won't even be able to take off. You know, look, I mean, that was the message of the, of the, uh, the Kinzhal missile when uh, you know like with 30 or 40 miles from the polish border and blew up that nato training center and killed god knows how many hundreds of people including many western and american mercenaries the message of that strike was we can take this stuff out anywhere we control the skies we control this you can't win a war without air control i'm not a military expert and i know that if you can't mm -hmm. control the skies you cannot win a war and that's what happened so sean hannity you know talk about great christian right great christian sean hannity <laughs> he would be happy to sacrifice down to the last ukrainian uh for the for his goal of what i don't know undermining putin which won't happen because ironically not ironically but but putin's numbers have jumped through the roof now for 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 doing what they've done and poor old biden did not get a war bump he got the he got the opposite. We did. Yeah. A, we talked about a new poll in the Liberty Report today, where his his numbers have reached a new low. So, there you go. Yeah. So, speaking of Biden, he made a gaffe that some people don't think was a gaffe, where he said that Putin needs to be replaced, and he's commented on it when people have asked him, "What did you mean?" And he says, "Okay, well, I didn't mean we should actually do anything ourselves. I just think that we want." somebody other than Putin in charge. Do you buy that that was just a sentiment he was expressing and that there really is no plan? Because he has said over and over, we will not send troops into Ukraine. We are not going to fight Russia unless, you know, a NATO country is invaded or whatever. Do you think this is all sincere or do you think they're actually stupid enough that they might drag us into this? Some are. I think the State Department types are. I think the Pentagon types. That's why the Pentagon put the gavash on this whole MiG thing. It was insane. The State Department blinked and said, hey, Poland, you want to send some MiGs? Wink, wink. Right. And Poland said, oh, shit. If we do that, we're going to be we're going to be a co-belligerent and we're going to get you're going to get, you know, some missiles up our rear ends. So so Poland said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you give us some F-16s? We'll take the MiGs that you want. We'll send them to Germany and you guys can deliver them. And and, you know, Blinken is stupid enough to say, oh, that sounds like a pretty good idea. The Pentagon finally butted in and said. This is insane. This is not going to happen. A, and they literally said that we conclude that this will not make an appreciable difference in the outcome of this war. And this is pretty early on. This is a couple of weeks ago, right? So the Pentagon knows what's up. Uh, the State Department doesn't, which is a dangerous thing. Um, it runs through the Hillary State Department, which is much more aggressive, much more hawkish than the Pentagon at the time. So you have the, you know, the State Department writing checks that the Pentagon doesn't want to cash. Um, but as to the gaffes, you know, at first I thought, oh, there goes there goes Joe again talking out of his rear. But then I really started reading some people and thinking, maybe they did put that in his speech. He's going to read whatever they put in his speech, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he could, God knows what they could say in there, um, uh, and he would read it. Uh, that could be the case. I mean, we're kind of we're just kind of guess guessing and speculating. 
But the weird thing about it is that, okay, he said that, my God, this man cannot stay in power. And then Blinken Russian said, well, he didn't mean that we want regime change. And then they asked him and he said, well, I was speaking in an aspirational manner. And then, and then they asked him again. He said, I stand by everything I said in that statement. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, his flax keep having to run back and put out the fires that he creates every time he opens his mouth. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think the best case scenario is for this thing to end? Um, do you think that Putin is just going to say, like, look, I'll, I'm, I'm keeping Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea, and you guys need to sign a treaty that you will never join NATO, or what does this look like from a best case scenario standpoint? Well, what I think the Russians are doing is very similar to what they did in Syria, which is establish facts on the ground. And by destroying, literally destroying the entire military of Ukraine, uh, and on the verge of, of destroying the manpower, what's left of the manpower of Ukraine, they're establishing a big fact on the ground. It may be a moot point whether or not they become a military power again, because they don't have a military anymore. Uh, it's been decimated, and despite what people will say, the targets have primarily been military, unlike when we invaded, of course, uh, when we attacked Yugoslavia and we attacked Iraq in uh, Syria, we took out the infrastructure first, we took out water, sanitation, and these things. Uh, they've been largely left untouched. Of course, there is a lot of collateral damage, but the focus hasn't been. The focus has been on military targets uh, in Ukraine. So the, the, the end game is going to be a a neutral uh, Ukraine that is not part of any military alliance. And, and, and kind of funny enough, I mean, if you understand Russian humor, that has to play a role in it. Uh, the Russians said, well, we'll probably, you can join the EU. That's, that's okay. I saw that, Which, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine the Hungarians, the Bulgarians, all these guys are like, what? What are you talking about? That's our gravy train. You know, no, you can't join. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, it's um, so that's going to be a funny fight to see. Um, you know, the Russians are like, yeah, you can join. Let them pay to rebuild all the stuff we blew up in your country. <laughs> you know, so I think that's pretty that's pretty hilarious. But the, the, the not hilarious and the sick and sad part is basically Ukraine will, will return to the status that it had before uh, this whole thing started. Uh, and the only difference will be a lot of dead people, a lot of stuff blown up because they're not going to join NATO, and they never, they never were going to join NATO. Uh, and in fact, if they had taken the deal that Yanukovych was offered in 2014 before the U.S. overthrew the country, uh, they would have been a much more prosperous uh, than they were. I mean, they stupidly enough, can you imagine if we said, we're not going to trade with Canada? We just hate those Canucks, right? They're our neighbors. They're our biggest trading partner because of that. And the same would have been true with Ukraine and Russia. They would have traded. Uh, they would have found a way to get along. Uh, and they would have been much more prosperous. So they lose. The Ukrainians are the big losers of the whole thing, unfortunately. And, you know, basically, uh, you know, the, the, the Russians are going to get a demilitarized Ukraine uh, just by facts on the ground. Yeah. So last question. Um, I supported Tulsi Gabbard in 2020 just because there wasn't really anyone else that she was yeah. good on some of this stuff. Uh, back in 2016, I supported Rand, um, but it, it seems like things are going downhill politically. It's really hard to find anyone from the two-party system to get behind. Like I, you know, I, I've thought, man, would it be different if Trump were in office right now? A couple times because you know, at least he could form sentences and stuff, and maybe he could talk <laughs> to Putin 
But then I remember like how horrible his Ukraine policy was and the whole fact that he got him. The, the reason he got impeached was for temporarily holding up arms to Ukraine that we ended up sending them anyway. Um, so it, it just seems like our options are getting worse and worse. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the Libertarian Party with the Mises caucus, people like Dave Smith and Scott Horton, who are really investing in it. Do you think that that's a worthwhile endeavor at this point or what are your outlooks for the future with the political system well you know ron paul would say do whatever you want to do but do something mm-hmm. and I, my hats are off to dave smith and to scott and them because they're doing something uh whether i think it's ultimately going to be successful it doesn't matter they're doing something i know they have the best of intentions and i wish them all success um I, i'm not particularly motivated by politics i haven't voted in a long 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 time because it's a waste of time and it's useless and it gives you know it gives a sense of um uh, it gives a sense of uh, uh, that the system is somehow valid and i don't think it is um but people that are involved in that i i think that's great uh they should be and they should uh they're working for the best and i was just looking at a letter that Sarwork sent out to the lp people screaming about how evil the mises caucus was and how they're trying to take over and so that, if anything, would give you a boost in the arm to Dave Smith and the others. You're doing the right thing, guys. You're pissing off the right people. Uh, so keep doing it. Um, uh, Dr. Paul would say um, the po- the people get the politicians that they demand. And so what are the course that we take is an educational course. We try to so we try to teach people. We try to help people understand um, uh, and conservatives, liberals, progressives uh, that the state is not your friend. That the state hates you. It steals your money and does bad things with it. Um, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't support uh, our our evil demonic foreign policy that has completely ended Christianity in Iraq, the cradle of Christianity, in essence, uh, decimated the Christian community in Syria um, that Assad did his best to protect while he was in charge and while he now is still in charge. So to get people who are kind of there a little bit, people that are patriotic, uh, and try to turn that in a way that can, yeah, okay, I guess it isn't that awfully patriotic to completely debase our currency so that, you know, so that we can't even survive uh, and live. So I think that's, you know, that's what we try to do. But I think everyone does have a role, whether you're an artist, uh, maybe a musician, uh, you know, what have you. Maybe you're great at organizing. And that's the uplifting part of Dr. Paul's message. Just do something. Uh, a lot of people, what they do, is they get wealthy and they become donors and they help causes they believe in. That's important too, you know. Yeah, activists are great, you know, but they're kind of a dime a dozen. People who who can who can sustain a can sustain a business and make a profit, and instead of plowing that money into a Bentley, will actually support causes. I mean, our donors are the greatest people on earth, and they are hardworking, fantastic people. And instead of living super high on the hog. They give money to causes that they believe in, and that's an extraordinarily noble, noble thing to do. Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, taking time to come on my show. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I've been watching you and Ron for years, and uh, you guys are some of my original inspiration toward (laughs) throwing away the stupidity (laughs) of my past and really looking into the truth of all this stuff. Uh, so where could people keep up with you and follow what's going on, keep up with the, the Institute and everything important coming down the pipe? I'll just say about how you started. It's never too late to change your mind. I was much older than you when it when my eyes opened up about the beauty of non-interventionism. So never never be afraid to change your mind when the facts 
are different around you. The second thing I was to say, sometimes you're gonna have to take me shooting that gun that I saw you in that video with sometime because that was <laughs> really, really funny. I'm not a big gun guy, but I loved that video. <clears throat> um, and uh, maybe in, uh, take me for riding the truck. But um, but uh, ronpaulinstitute.org is our website. We, we put up three or four articles a day, uh, basically just kind of things you must read if you want to keep up with things. So it's not a huge menu of items. There's no like pizza and hamburgers, right? It's just a small menu of things that you might want to consume each day. The Ron Paul Liberty Report is broadcast live at noon Eastern time on YouTube and on Rumble and Odyssey, uh, which are free speech platforms. Who knows how long we'll be on YouTube. Um, and our conferences, we've got one coming up <clears throat> in June in Houston, uh, and we have one uh, in Washington, D.C. that we always do toward the end of summer, and we'll do another one, uh, most likely, uh, in Lake Jackson here in, uh, in, in November. So it's, uh, it's all good, and we love getting together with people, and we encourage people to get out and uh, watch the show and come visit with us at the conferences. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, let's do it again sometime. I'd love to have a conversation in the future. And I'll provide all those links to the places you just described in the description. Everyone go follow Daniel McAdams, the Ron Paul Institute, Ron Paul. Um, I'm assuming almost everyone who watches my show already watches you guys. But if you don't, go do it. You won't regret it. Thanks, Ray.